2: This
3: is Bloomberg Law.
4: A divided Supreme Court rejects a religious challenge. Tell us a
1: little about the facts of the case.
3: Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts.
1: My guest is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Carule. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin.
3: And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines.
1: The Supreme Court takes on state secrets. Multiple lawsuits were filed against the emergency rule. Is this lawsuit for real?
3: Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from
1: Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Kimberly Robinson.
5: And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grasso. Coming up on the show, allegations of voter fraud in Florida and a big new whistleblower complaint against Twitter.
1: But first, the Justice Department is under pressure to change positions in a pending Supreme Court case and call for the justices to overrule a series of cases that critics say makes residents of U.S. territories second-class citizens. With us is Neil Ware of Equally American, who represents the plaintiff in the case, Fittisimano versus United States. Thanks for joining us.
6: My pleasure. I'm glad to be on your show.
1: So before we jump into the cases that you're asking the justices to overturn, these so-called insular cases, can you tell me about what you're asking the justices to do here? What is it that your clients are asking for in this case?
6: So I represent John Fedisimanu and other individuals born in American Samoa who are now currently living in Utah. And under a discriminatory federal statute despite being born on U.S. soil, the federal government does not recognize them as citizens, instead labeling them with the subordinate status of non-citizen national. So this means they have U.S. passports, they're Americans, but they're not citizens. And, And their passports, in fact, have a disclaimer in them saying that the bearer of this passport is a national but not a citizen of the United States. Now, whatever that means, I mean, that is incredibly confusing to lawyers, much less to my clients. And so as a result, they can't vote in state or federal elections. They're ineligible for certain jobs. And all they're asking the court to recognize is what citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment already guarantees, that if you're born on sovereign U.S. soil, you have a right to citizenship.
1: And so you said earlier that there's actually a citizenship clause in the Constitution that says if you're born on American soil, then you are an American citizen. And yet the territories are subject to these statutes. And that's where these insular cases come in, right? Can you tell us a little bit about this series of cases and what it is that they held? So the
6: insular cases are a series of Supreme Court decisions decided uh, following the Spanish-American War in 1898 when the United States found itself with these overseas territories like Puerto Rico and Guam that were inhabited by populations that the Supreme Court justices disparaged as alien races, uh, savages, uncivilized, unfit to be U.S. citizens. And up until 1898, the Constitution had always recognized and lawyers had always recognized that should the United States Acquire areas of U.S. territory, the people born there would have a constitutional right to citizenship. Those territories would be on the path to statehood. But with the acquisition of these overseas territories, political leaders didn't want to extend those rights. The United States wanted to join the Club of Imperial Nations. And the only thing really standing in the way of that was the U.S. Constitution. And so eventually, in a few years after the executive branch and Congress tried to fuzz the lines, uh, these questions came to the U.S. Supreme Court, which essentially ruled that Congress has discretion to act outside traditional constitutional limits and that the people of these areas would never be on the path to eventual full political participation. And as so these areas could be held as colonies. And Justice John Marshall Harlan who um, folks may know as the lone dissenter and the Plessy versus Ferguson, was also the most vocal dissenter in the insular cases, really making the case that our Constitution is anti-colonial.
5: What would overturning the insular cases mean for American Samoa? And in particular, uh, tell me if I've got this wrong, but I understand the American Samoan government has been on the other side of this case, and they've expressed concern that there are some cultural practices in American Samoa like the collective ownership of land, uh, requirements that uh, a certain percentage of uh, the people who own land have a certain percentage of their ancestry being American Samoan. Are those potential consequences that those practices would be uh, deemed unconstitutional if the court were to overturn the insular cases?
6: Yes. Yeah, so kind of the most direct result of, of overruling the INSERT cases would be simply to return things to where they stood before them, which, you know, the United States has always had, territories have always been part of our constitutional structure. Congress has always had broad power in those territories. But what the Supreme Court and Congress's view prior to the Insta cases was, is that certain stop signs that the Constitution provides, like the Citizenship Clause, that Congress has no power to deny birthright citizenship, Apply throughout the United States, including the territories. And what the 10th Circuit and other circuits and other lower courts have done is dramatically expand the scope of what the Insular cases actually held. With respect to the opposition from elected officials in American Samoa, there are different views among elected officials within and between different territories. You know, American Samoa's position comes down to this: like, agreeing with the United States that Congress has unfettered discretion to answer this question of citizenship. Um, and scholars who have looked at these concerns about these land ownership rules have really identified that they're not related to questions of citizenship or even the insular cases. In fact, in American Samoa right now, the current case law there, a case decided by three federal district court judges sitting by designation in American Samoa, upheld those land rules without applying the insert cases framework, but simply applying traditional equal protection analysis, mm. which certainly applies in each of the territories today.
1: That's Neil Ware, who represents the plaintiff in Fiti Misano versus the United States. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Up next, we continue our conversation, including efforts to lobby the Biden administration to switch sides. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. This is
5: Bloomberg.
3: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
5: I'm Greg Storr.
1: And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're in for June Grosso. We've been talking with Neil Weira of Equally American about a case pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. Before we left, we were talking about the cases that you're asking the justices to overturn. Now, tell us a little bit about the lobbying effort to get the U.S. on your side in this case. What does that look like? What steps are being taken and by which groups? Yeah,
6: so... You know the question for the Department of Justice and the Biden administration to decide is, is whether to support or oppose calls to overrule the insular cases. And so just a few months ago, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor, both agreed that it was time for the United States Supreme Court to overrule the insular cases. And echoing their views have been a broad array of civil rights organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union, Latino Justice Pearl Def, the Legal Defense Fund, and others who have called upon the Biden administration to jettison these archaic, racist Supreme Court decisions. At the same time, a number of bar associations have also taken a stand calling on the Biden administration to support rather than oppose calls to overrule the insular cases. The American Bar Association just a couple weeks ago passed a resolution supporting calls to turn the page on the insular cases in the colonial framework they established. Uh, the New York State Bar Association has passed a similar resolution with bar associations in the U.S. Virgin Islands and Guam being very active and in, in seeking to advance equality and overruling the insular cases. And we shall soon hear what the Biden administration's position is in these cases. They're set to file. Their deadline is August 29th. So we'll soon know what they've decided. Then we'll look beyond that to see what the Supreme Court has to say.
5: So there was a case last term involving uh, Social Security benefits in the island of Puerto Rico in which the Biden administration did not ask the court to overturn the insular cases. Is there something about your case that gives you reason to hope that uh, the administration may come out differently?
6: Yeah, the case uh, last term, United States versus Bayamadero Madero, um, dealt with the application of the Equal Protection Clause to federal laws that deny federal benefits to residents of certain territories while extending them to others. And all throughout the case, uh, while the insular cases kind of hung in the background, they weren't central to the actual holdings of the lower courts and the United States had not relied on them to advance the argument that residents of Puerto Rico could be denied non-supplemental um, security income benefits. In Citi Sumano versus United States, the Department of Justice's argument really begins and ends with the insular cases. So, unlike prior cases where the insular cases were in the background, um, they really are front and center in the Citi Sumano case. And in our petition, we expressly ask the Supreme Court to consider. Whether or not to overrule the answer cases.
1: You know, I'm remembering back under President Obama where the Justice Department did, in fact, change positions on the Defense Against Marriage Act and the same sex marriage context. And just wondering, how unusual is it for an administration to kind of do a 180?
6: Uh, at the beginning of Biden's term, the Justice Department did change a number of its positions from what the Trump Justice Department had been litigating. But, in fact, probably the more apt precedent to look at in terms of the Justice Department is how former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal um, in the Obama administration issued a confession of error with respect to the Korematsu case, that's the Japanese internment case, saying that the United States had been wrong to argue in favor of Japanese internment and really condemning those cases, even as they remained, quote-unquote, good law, under Supreme Court precedent. And that's really what all that we're asking the Solicitor General to do here. We wrote her a letter explaining that the Justice Department simply don't rely on these racist cases. If they want to continue defending these discriminatory statutes, that's up to them. They do have some other arguments, but what they shouldn't do is rely on cases that fit in the same class as Plessy versus Ferguson, Dred Scott, and Korematsu. Um, so, you know, that's what, what arguments the Department of Justice makes to advance their cases completely within their discretion. And it's actually a much less of a lift for them to decide to stop relying on racist Supreme Court cases than other examples like Doma, where they actually changed their litigating position you know, to, to support the other side than they had been supporting in the case.
5: Remind us just exactly where this case stands. This is not a case that the justices have agreed to consider yet, right?
2: Yeah, we're
6: still at the review stage, and so at the district court, the district court judge ruled in favor of Mr. Fidesz recognizing that under the Constitution he had the right to citizenship. At the circuit court stage, that decision was reversed two to one, with three separate opinions being written by the judges uh, at the Tenth Circuit. We appealed for review by the full Tenth Circuit. weren't successful, but two judges did write a very long and scholarly opinion dissenting to the denial of that review. And so now we've asked uh, the court to take up the case. Eight amicus briefs have been filed in support of Supreme Court review. And now we will hear from the United States Department of Justice and the Solicitor General on whether they will support or oppose the calls to overrule the insert cases
1: in this case, Neil. One final question: You know, we've been talking about you know how these cases have been criticized sort of across the board, including from the justices themselves. You know, across the ideological spectrum. Why is it that mm-hmm. these cases are still on the books and still considered good law? What work are they doing now that might make the justices hesitate to take them off the books? it's
6: really not clear. And that's been one of the challenges in overruling them. You know, over the last five years, there's been three or four big Supreme Court cases involving Puerto Rico, where, again, the insular case is kind of hung in the background. But as the Supreme Court, you know, says they should be held to their facts and narrows them, that limits situations where they um, necessarily arise and are central to the disposition of a case. So ours is one of Perhaps the only situations where lower courts would squarely rely on the insert cases to reach the legal result in a case, you know, the Department of Justice has been hesitant to call on the Supreme Court to overrule them, even when pressed by Justice Gorsuch three or four separate times in the argument last term, and the justices themselves, until recently, have been hesitant too. So not kind of reaching out to decide these issues, even when you know it's been in the mix. And that's problematic because, you know, the Supreme Court itself is responsible for the development of this doctrine. You know, the Supreme Court in the Insular cases reached well beyond mm. um, the issues in the case to establish this colonial framework. So just as the Supreme Court and the justices who sit on it were themselves responsible for the Insular cases, they also need to be responsible for some of the solution and addressing the harms that have sprung from that over the last more than 120 years.
1: Well, thanks so much to our guest, Neil Ware. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg
5: Storr. Coming up next, Florida has arrested 20 people for voter fraud, even though many of those people say they thought they were entitled to vote. This is Bloomberg.
3: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: I'm
5: Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grasso. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis last week trumpeted the arrests of 20 people who allegedly committed voter fraud by casting ballots even though they were convicted felons. But it turns out many of those people say they thought they were entitled to vote. With us to talk about this is Neil Voles. He is the Deputy Director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Neil, this all stems from a 2018 ballot initiative that your group sponsored. Tell us what that ballot initiative did.
3: Yeah, well, Greg, Kimberly, one, thanks for having having us on and shining the light on this important issue. Uh, In 2018, the voters of Florida passed Amendment 4, uh, which restored uh, the voting eligibility for nearly 1.4 million people with past felony convictions. Uh, Folks like myself and and others in our movement who uh, had past felony convictions and who up until that point had to deal with a lifetime voting ban in the state of Florida. So this was a a little bit of history here because this is kind of like a Dickens novel, right? The best of times, the worst of times. On one hand, we saw the largest expansion of democracy in our country in a generation. But we also saw the implementation of that uh, amendment end up requiring people to pay certain financial obligations before uh, they are, in fact, eligible to vote, which means that there are hundreds of thousands of people with uh, past convictions who are still not yet able to vote in the state of Florida.
1: That's right. Yeah, that was one of the questions that I had was, you know, there is this requirement that felons have to pay off all fines and fees before being able to vote. What effect does that have with restoring voting rights? Uh, is there any kind of evidence that most people have been able to get their voting rights back, or is this being a real block for that?
3: Well, one, as far as our organization and this movement, I mean, we just get up every day, you know, kind of put our work boots on and, and just keep moving forward. And, and I know according to the voter file, last month's voter file, Um, There are about 216,000 people with past convictions who are currently registered uh, in the state of Florida, and that's a lot of people, a lot of families, a lot of voices being heard, uh, but we know there's still a long way to go, especially when you consider that uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people who continue to not be eligible because they owe financial obligations.
1: What do you see are the impacts of these arrests? If we see that the fines and the implementing legislation is kind of holding up the ability of people to regain their right to vote, is this gonna have any effect on that as well?
3: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, there's such a human element to this, and you know, there's not a better advocate for democracy, in my opinion, than somebody who lost the right to vote and got it back. So we know that there's a deeper conversation going on here about how we see each other and, 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 and their roles in society. But on a very tangible level, it also just shines a light on an issue that we've been talking about for the last four years. Since the passage of Amendment 4, everywhere we go publicly in private meetings, we've been saying the same thing, that the process is broken. That what we need is a statewide uh, database that would allow people to become eligible or understand that they're eligible to vote from the government. Uh, on the front end, um, because everybody who's being impacted by this latest move by uh, the governor and this election uh, police force actually is in a spot in which we should not be. Um, we know that when someone registers the vote, it is the responsibility of the state to determine an individual's eligibility prior to issuing a voter identification card. So we're talking about people who got identification cards, voter ID cards from the government, and therefore had gone through the front end of the process to then spend time and um, taxpayer dollars investigating and law enforcement's time and now arresting people uh, who had been given voter ID cards on the front end years ago just seems like we're not doing it right. Because at the end of the day, the best way to fight crime is to stop it from happening in the first place.
5: Tell us a little more about what you're reading and hearing about the people who were arrested and and why they say they thought they were entitled to vote, in addition to the fact that they uh, actually had those voter registration cards that you mentioned.
3: Yeah, it's a great question, and, and it just kind of exemplifies kind of the humanity of this story, right? Because across the state, we have individuals with their individual stories, and family members who are reaching out to us who are concerned about their loved ones. And we know that it's important for people to be able to know that somebody has got their back. And, and that's the role of FRC and reaching out and, and talking and walking it out with people who are impacted by this, the through line, of these conversations really just keeps coming back to the fact that the state system is not working uh, for anybody, right? That, uh, you know, we need to fix the system to prevent the criminalization of voting and the wasteful spending of tax dollars to investigate and prosecute Florida citizens, right? It's just less costly and easier to prevent those situations from happening in the first place. And when you talk to somebody who gets caught up in that process, you know, we don't know exactly what Every individual's case is somebody might have come in from another state and they they thought that their conviction had been, you know, cleared up or somebody you know, went through the clemency process and and, and had their voting rights restored. We don't know everybody's individual situation, but that's part of the situation that we're dealing with, which is the government is the one who can provide assurances for folks who are voting. You know, if you can't rely on the government to verify their voting eligibility, who can they rely on? And so to come back years afterwards and to begin to prosecute people just shows how the system isn't working.
5: Okay, thank you very much. That was Neil Volz, Deputy Director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Coming up next, Twitter faces a whistleblower complaint filed by its former security chief. I'm Greg Storr.
1: And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg.
3: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg
5: Radio.
1: I'm Kimberly Robinson.
5: And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grasso. Twitter is facing a new whistleblower complaint, with its former head of security claiming severe shortcomings in the company's handling of users' personal data. News of the complaint sent Twitter shares tumbling on Tuesday. With us to talk about it is Bloomberg News reporter Leah Nyland. She covers the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, Leah, thanks for being here. Let's start off by just telling us who this whistleblower is.
2: Yeah, so Peter Zatko was the head of cybersecurity for Twitter. He was brought in about 2020 after there was another hack of Twitter's system. And he was there until January when he was fired by the Twitter CEO allegedly for performance issues. Um, He filed a whistleblower complaint with the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the Justice Department, and uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. That whistleblower complaint was also sent to members of Congress.
1: And so, you know, the allegations here are said not only to put user data at risk, but also uh, perhaps national security. Can you tell us about
2: what allegations are actually in the whistleblower complaint? There's a lot of them. So uh, there are several allegations about bots, the number of bots that Twitter says it has on its platform versus what it internally thinks are on the system. This is an issue, of course, in um, Elon Musk's potential takeover of Twitter and the lawsuit that is now pending up in Delaware that's going to trial in October. The other big issue is that Twitter has been under uh, order with the Federal Trade Commission over its Cybersecurity Practices since 2011. There was a hack back in 2009 that the FTC investigated and then they reached a settlement with Twitter then um, and put them under order. So they are supposed to be reporting to the FTC things on their privacy and data security for 20 years. He says that Twitter has not accurately been portraying things about its privacy and data security to federal regulators and that they have been in violation of this consent decree. This would not actually be the first time that Twitter had violated the consent decree. It has already paid $150 million to the Federal Trade Commission for taking user phone numbers that users had uploaded for security purposes and using them for targeted advertising.
5: What has been the reaction to this complaint? What are lawmakers saying about it? What, if anything, are the agencies saying about it?
2: The agencies are being pretty mum about it right now. Um, They usually don't disclose if they are investigating something, but almost always when a complaint of this nature would uh, be submitted to the FTC or even the DOJ, they would at least look at it, particularly from someone of this level at the company. Congress, however, has been very vocal about their concerns. You know, most members of Congress actually use Twitter, so there is, um, you know, a little bit of concern about their own accounts. There is also a lot of concern given that, um, you know, the Justice Department just uh, convicted a former Twitter employee of using his access at the company to spy on behalf of the Saudi Arabian government on dissidents. And those were some of the sort of like national security concerns that Zatko talked about in his complaint. He suggested that the Indian government had been doing something similar about those who sort of oppose the current regime. He also raised some concerns about Russia and China. China's access to the platform.
1: Earlier you mentioned the $44 billion deal between Twitter and Elon Musk. This has been going back and forth for quite a while now. Can you tell us how the allegations in there could affect uh, this legal fight?
2: Yes. So one of the big issues in Musk's legal fight has to do with the number of bots on Twitter's platform. These are computer-created accounts and obviously, advertisers don't really want to be paying for their ads to be shown to computers. They want to be pay for their ads to be shown to people. Um, so Musk has alleged that the number of bots on the platform is actually much higher than what Twitter has disclosed publicly. Twitter says that they believe it's about less than 5% of, they have a, a funny metric for it, but about 5% of active accounts. And Zatco says that actually it's probably higher than that and that, you know, Twitter has been sort of fudging the numbers a little bit internally so that they don't have to come up with a a very clear metric for the number of bots. That would obviously help, you know, Musk's uh, complaint in Delaware, since he is trying to walk away from this deal for Twitter because of allegations that they didn't give him enough uh, information to accurately estimate the number of bots. And so immediately after this complaint became public, he started posting on Twitter about how this helped him. There was a a meme he posted of Jiminy Cricket from pinocchio <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you know obviously, his lawyers and he were were pretty happy about this disclosure
5: The, the meme referenced whistling, if I recall yes <laughs> so step back for a second. obviously, these are allegations, and so we don 't know you know the extent to which they are true but how big of a of a problem is this for Twitter? It certainly seems as though it's a multifaceted uh, issue for them that they're gonna have to deal with on, on several fronts.
2: Yeah, this is what's interesting is, compared to the other tech companies, Twitter hasn't had as much difficulty in Washington. Yes, they have had these investigations by the FTC over security practices in 2011, and then more recently the one over uh, phone numbers, but they haven't, nearly had as much difficulties as like Google, which is facing, you know, about five different antitrust investigations, or Facebook, which is also facing several antitrust investigations. Jack Dorsey has testified, the former Twitter CEO has testified on the Hill, but not nearly as many times as, for example, Mark Zuckerberg has been dragged up there. But this is like definitely the biggest whistleblower complaint that Twitter has faced, and and sort of regulatory issues that Twitter has faced in Washington yet. And the fact that it is very multifaceted, that it involves, you know, user privacy and security, it involves national security, it involves potentially lying to advertisers, I mean, it runs the gamut. And Twitter, as I said, has not generally dealt with uh, as big problems like this in the past.
1: What has been Twitter's response so far? Have they said anything about the allegations?
2: They've mostly said, you know, he was fired for performance issues in January. So please take a grain of salt of anything he's saying. And, you know, they have categorically denied some of his allegations. They say that, you know, they particularly have pushed back on the allegations about bots and have said that they don't think that his allegations are accurate and that they intend to contest some of them.
5: What happens next with this, or do we know what happens next?
2: Well, obviously, you know, the trial involving Elon Musk is coming up in October. Uh, Some of this will definitely get aired there. The FTC, as I said, is not probably not going to confirm that it's looking into this. It sometimes does confirm in in what they consider major cases. So, for example, it confirmed in the Cambridge Analytica case that it was looking at Facebook just because that was of such intense public interest. But um, they would be looking at this complaint and possibly uh, bringing Twitter in to explain why they think that this does not violate the consent decree that they've you know, been on for over a decade. And then probably you know, a lot of members of Congress have already said that they want to hear from this whistleblower personally, so we may sort of see a bunch of congressional hearings in the same way that we did with uh, Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen last fall.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about these national security concerns? You know, there's an allegation in the whistleblower report that talks about the access that employees have to certain high-profile accounts. How does that factor into the concerns that are being raised here?
2: Yeah, there's a couple different national security concerns. You know, he says that a lot of Twitter employees have access that would allow them to uh, to sort of take over prominent accounts and or look into the DMs that people send. Obviously, that could be problematic. I mean, you're not supposed to be talking about super secret things on Twitter DMs. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, you know, the case that the Justice Department had brought um, against the employee who was spying for the Saudis, the allegation there was, you know, a lot of people in Saudi Arabia had created accounts anonymously but insiders could see, for example, the email or phone number that was associated with the account and if they gave that to the government, it would be a way for the government to sort of track down people who are critics and potentially do you know, harm to them in real life.
5: The, the overall kind of uh, atmosphere that this complaint suggests about Twitter Tell me if I'm wrong. Seems to be that this is all stuff that Twitter just doesn't care about that much, that it doesn't make a priority to deal with these national security issues and just general user experience issues. Isn't that right?
2: Yeah. The – Complaint alleges that a lot of Twitter executives just cared much more about the company's stock price, this, the company continuing to get new users, than they did about the security. The whistleblower, as we mentioned, had only been brought in in 2020, but he is a very prominent cybersecurity expert. He had worked you know, for the federal government at places including DARPA, he is a well-known hacker, so he, you know, knows this stuff backwards and forwards. And he was talking about Twitter not having updated software, not really having information on all of the computers that could access its servers. He alleged that, you know, if Twitter didn't even have enough backups, so if there had been a cyber attack in which they attacked some of the data centers, the company might not even be able to keep its platform up or bring it back online. So he was focused a lot more on some of the infrastructure cybersecurity issues than maybe past whistleblowers, and he has a lot of knowledge and respect within the community. So I think that's why a lot of people are taking his complaints seriously. And so these are just allegations
1: at this point, but if they do turn out to be accurate, what is it that can be done about it? Is it only something that Twitter can take care of it? Or is there something that Congress can do, further action by federal officials that they can take to kind of? clear up these shortcomings?
2: Yeah, well, if Twitter is found to have violated the Federal Trade Commission's uh, consent decree, the FTC could impose fines on them. As I mentioned, they had already paid a $150 million fine. The FTC also does have the ability to impose liability on individuals. So if they had found that Twitter was flagrantly not paying attention to these issues, they could try and impose penalties on individuals. And then if they did find that there were other sort of employees who had been spying for governments as in the case of the saudi arabian uh case they could potentially bring criminal charges
5: okay well thank you very much bloomberg news federal trade commission reporter leah nylan that does it for this episode of bloomberg law i'm greg store
1: and i'm kimberly robinson this is bloomberg you
0: know it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through